Welcome to the Well Ministry Podcast, where we want to help you understand the Bible. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Pastor Nathan Walter. In Matthew 9, 27... All right, Jesus heals the blind and the mute, just in case you have a Bible that doesn't have a heading. Um, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. All right. So uh, last week we read about Jesus raising a girl from the dead. A man named Jairus, who was a synagogue leader, came and begged him um, to see to his daughter who was sick, and she died on the way, and he healed her. Um, So upon leaving the house of Jairus, uh, he's picked up quite a crowd. And in that crowd, we're told there's two blind men crying out to him, have mercy on us, son of David. So in this section, if you've been taking note, uh, Matthew has been listing the miracles of Jesus to point out Uh, to the Jews, the credentials that Jesus has, kind of like a resume for Jesus to point out that he is the Messiah, right? They've been looking for the Messiah. It's written in the Bible what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so he's pointing out, hey, this guy, Jesus, has been doing all the things that it's been told he would do. And one such prophecy is in Isaiah 35, and it's longer, but I'm going to read 4 through 6. And it says, Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Okay, but Matthew, as he's listing these prophecies, he's not the only one who is aware of these prophecies. These blind men are aware of these prophecies that the blind will see, uh, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap like a deer, and, and the mute will shout for joy. So when they're coming, uh, when the Messiah is coming, uh, the son of David, they know the son of David will bring about a messianic age where these things would happen. And they see they're happening. So, so they believe this is the messianic age and this is the Messiah. This is the first time that Jesus in the Bible is called the son of David, is referred to as the son of David. But these men... You might be like, oh, these men have great faith. They can see what other people can't see. They're not extraordinary in their belief that this is the age of the coming Messiah, that that age when the Messiah would come is upon them. Um, There was an intense belief in this day and age that the Messiah would come and that it would come in this area. We actually talked about it at Jesus' birth, 
that even the Magi's had this expectation. They were watching the stars because they already had a belief that a Messiah would come from this area. So this is a, a widespread belief that a Messiah would come from this area at this time. So these men believe he's Messiah. They've heard of the miracles he's done. Um, and they believe that, like the prophecy says, their eyes will be open. Um, and Jesus opening their eyes is going to be more than a physical change for them. Uh, just like we've spoken before with illnesses and disease, blindness was frequently regarded as the judgment of God. And so not only did it make them social outcasts, but it actually put some serious religious limitations on them uh, based on some of the things the priests had, had added. But I'm going to read a little bit out of Leviticus to see where, where, they, where they got this from. Because these were, these were rules for priests in Leviticus 21, 16 through 22. I'm going to le- read a little bit more than I need to so we can understand this. But it says, The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, For the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed, no man with a crippled foot or hand, or who is a hunchback or a dwarf, or who has any eye defect, or who has festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No descendant of Aaron the priest who has any defect, no descendant of Aaron the priest, who has any defect, is to come near to present the food offering to the Lord. Okay, he has a defect, he must not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the most holy food of his God as well as the holy food, yet because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar and so desecrate my sanctuary. I'm the Lord who makes them holy. So it's saying they're just the priest who is bringing the food and coming closest to the curtain, the most holy place, is not to... uh, present the food. The Lord still makes them holy. They can still eat the food. It's just a rule for the priests, okay? But as we know, the Pharisees like to expand the law and say, oh, they can't come near to God at all, right? Oh, so once again, we have social and religious outcasts viewed as judged by God, and they're calling out for mercy. Um, So Jesus hears them calling out to him, and, and he takes them inside, This is the first time we see him kind of take people aside. He usually does it in the midst of the crowd, but he takes these men inside to see them alone. Um, Because there's a certain safety in numbers. There's a certain safety in numbers. If we're traveling in a pack of people who believe, right, or or if you've ever been to um, a service where they're like, who needs prayer for this, you know, it's really hard to get the first person to say, me, I need prayer for that, right? And, but once someone does, then other people start to, and you're like, oh, wow, it's funny. It took five minutes for one person to admit they needed prayer for that, but now almost the entire group that's here needs prayer for that, it turns out, right? And so there's a safety in numbers, especially, I think, in terms of faith. If we're traveling in a pack, right? If you work, if you work in a place where everyone's a Christian, and I, I've worked in places where kind of the staff kind of changed where everyone was a Christian and we talked about God all the time and we talked to patients about God and then you work with people who aren't really into that and then all of a sudden you don't talk about it as much. You know, you try to keep it a little, a little quieter because there's a safety in numbers, all right? You can get caught up in the belief of the crowd and get up, caught up in the energy of the crowd, the excitement of the moment. But after the crowd, after the fellowship, after the excitement, the emotion has passed, there comes a moment when we are really truly alone with God. 
I've seen so many instances where there's been a revival or something and like what, a thousand people get saved and then maybe 50 go on to follow Christ. Because again, it's going to come back to what they do when they're alone with Christ. When there's no one to prop you up, no one to encourage you or lean on and all you have is Jesus. What do you believe? And so he takes them alone inside and says, do you believe that I can do this? And they answer a simple question. And they answer just as simply, yes, Lord. So Jesus touches their eyes and tells them, according to your faith, let it be done for you. And this doesn't mean, because I've read that some people think it means this, but it doesn't mean may you be healed in the direct equivalent of your faith. Like if you had a 30% faith that it was going to happen, may you receive 30% healing, right? That like one of the guys is like, I can see, but it's kind of blurry. Like, I, I, I think I just need glasses, but this is still great. I can still see this is, this is kind of awesome, right? That's, that's not how it worked, right? He's saying you are healed because you believed. Because you believed, you're healed. And then he tells them, and I kind of try, I don't know if you know, I try to emphasize certain parts I want you to get. Um, and so he, it says, he warns them sternly, see that no one sees, knows about this. And that might seem a little strange to us right? He's trying to spread the word, right? He's trying to spread the, the knowledge that he's the Messiah, right? He's trying to spread the love of God. Why would he say, tell no one about this? Um, and I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. We'll come back to it. But they do, what, what do they end up doing? They end up telling everybody. They end up telling everyone. And, and how could they not, right? Like, how could they not? When something great happens, you want to tell everyone, right? You've got great news. You want to tell people. It's not like, and how could they not? Like when they saw people and like, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, you can see. How can you see? And they're like, not allowed to say, <laughs> right? Or maybe, maybe they tried to obey. Maybe they did the thing that everyone does where we say, listen, I'm not supposed to tell anybody. So if you promise not to tell anybody, I will tell you. And then before you know it, the whole town knows by that method, method right? And so regardless how they do it, they tell everyone. And as Jesus is leaving the house, Matthew just continues. That's how Matthew rolls. He's going to point out the next thing that Jesus did that fulfills prophecy. So as he's leaving the house, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. I want to point out that there's a distinction here. Um, that it says there's a demon making this man mute. Um, and the word actually here means deaf and mute, or more literally at that time, what it means is, is deaf and dumb, okay? But you can't really drive out the demon of dumbness, right? Who's tried? I don't know how many times I've just been in conversation, and I feel an overwhelming urge, and I put a hand on their head, and I said, demon of dumbness, you get out of them right now. And then I look at them, and I can see it's still there, and I say, I guess this one only comes out through prayer and fasting. Right, this one's going to take a long time. You got a lot of dumb on you. All right, um, don't 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 do that. Uh, so, like, uh, but there are other healings. One I want to point out: there are other healings of deaf and mute people in the Bible that it are not due to a demon. Doesn't say they're due to a demon. Okay, so there, this particular one was, and I think it's important to point out because sometimes uh, you can read things where it's like, well, they thought everything was a demon, and so that. Demons don't really exist, or, um, you know, and that's kind of leading to the devil doesn't really exist. 
But it does distinguish in the Bible, if you read, that it'll say, oh, he had a demon that made him not speak, or it would say, it wouldn't say that at all. And so it distinguishes between natural and like supernatural causes. And so when the demon is driven out, the man begins to speak, and everyone was amazed, and they say, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And it's not, they're not saying no demon has ever been driven out, because it has, but they're saying no one who could not speak has ever been able to speak before, which is pretty amazing if you saw that, right? But the Pharisee said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And this verse actually is the first time the Pharisees express open hostility towards Jesus, where they actually express uh, a dislike, right? The first expression of hostility is in chapter 9, verse 3, and it's private. It says, and they said to themselves, he's blaspheming. They just said it to themselves. The next encounter is implied in uh, chapter 9, verse 14, when they question the disciples, why do you do this? What, why? Which a lot of times, you know, when someone's asking you why you do something, it's really they want to be critical. You know, no one's like, why do you do that? I want to follow what you're doing. It's such a great technique. You know, it's usually like if someone's like, why do you do that? You're like, why are you asking? Right? So the first time they express hostility, it's private, then it's implied, and now it's open hostility toward Jesus. And this shows two opposing responses to the same thing. People see a miracle happen, and they say, nothing like this has ever happened. And the Pharisees agree, nothing like this has ever happened. We agree on that, but they disagree on why. It's either amazement or it's scorn based on what they believe, who they believe Jesus is. They've already decided who Jesus is, and we still see this. We still see this. I, I see it happen all the time. If something amazing starts to happen, and it's, it's okay for us to kind of question, is this of God, is this not of God? You know, when something happens. I, I've seen amazing things happen, whether you have an, a revival, right? And some people immediately are like, that's not of God. That's, that's not of God. And you're like, well, why is, it, why is it not of God? Tell me. People are getting saved. Uh, people are repenting, right? What, what exactly is not of God? Uh, please tell me, you know? And, and they'll have some, re we're very critical. We're very critical people, right? And so there's always going to be, oh, this is awesome, or oh, this is not. Now, if you're saying, oh, it's not of God, well, okay, are they saying things contrary to the Bible? Is something happening? Or sometimes I really feel like when the Holy Spirit begins to move, people are like, this is scary, this is not of God. Well, ah, ah, right? And I, I think we need to question our hearts. Do we not think this is happening because we've, we've decided in our hearts this isn't something God does, even though it's, I mean, they know the Bible. It says the Messiah will heal people. It doesn't say the devil's going to come and start healing people, right? That's not how it works, right? But they had already decided that this guy was evil, and so they decided in their hearts that what he's doing is evil. And I just want to point out that later in the Bible, in one of the letters, it begins to talk about, um, and I talked about this in one of my online two-minute things, um, the, this sin that Jesus said is like an unforgivable sin, which is calling the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the devil. Okay, so we have to be really careful about just jumping in and saying that's the devil when it might be the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's ways to check. I mean, are they, are, is it in opposition of what the Bible says, right? That's really the most, the most, if I hear someone, a pastor, say something that's 
uh, opposite of what the Bible says or add something that's not in there that changes what it means, I don't listen to them ever again. <laughs> you know, sometimes you make a mistake and it's like, oh, I made a mistake and you can kind of tell them. Sometimes it's like, oh, they're just, they're just making up what they want to make up, right? So, but the, the Pharisees have already decided who they believe Jesus is. So it's not like they're unable to change their minds or unable to understand or unable to see that this might be the Messiah. They're unwilling. They're unwilling to see that this is Jesus. I mean, who knows, who knows people like that, right? Who are just unwilling, right? Let's all just say their name aloud on three. <laughs> One. Mm. They're just unwilling to, to see who Jesus is. And then it says, Jesus continued to go through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So even though Matthew is listing the miracles of Jesus, trying to help people see that this is the Messiah, showing his credentials, that he is the Messiah, that he fulfills the prophecy. Jesus is not healing people to show his credentials. He's not trying to show how important he is. He wants people to believe that he's the Messiah so that they could be saved. Not... To, so, so they, un, not so they think he's important. He's not trying to build a following or spread his fame. He's trying to spread the fame of God. It's not about him. The reason he, he's going around healing so many people is because he had compassion for the people that he came across. He saw them and he was moved to compassion. The NIV that I just read, says that they were harassed and helpless. I don't know if your Bible says that or not, but the original translation into English is bewildered and dejected. And then we're going to go a step further. The word we tr have translated as bewildered is a word in Greek that is used to describe a corpse which is flayed and mangled. Someone who is robbed through extortion or pestered by those without pity, or someone who is wearied from a journey that doesn't seem to have an end. That's how Jesus saw these people. Just flayed and mangled, extorted and used, beaten and bruised, pestered with no end in sight in their quest to be pleasing to God. And the Greek word that Matthew uses that we have translated as dejected means laid prostrate and can be used to describe someone who has been laid low with mortal wounds. They're laid low with mortal wounds. Feels a little bit different than harassed and helpless. Am I right? When Jesus sees them, he just sees people who are just beaten and bruised and can't get up and there's no end in sight and they just look done and they look pitiful and he has compassion on them. The Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, right? They, they're supposed to be giving these people hope, all right? These are God's people. They, they're supposed to be giving people hope, encouraging them, giving them strength, 
helping them draw near to God, lift them up, help them live, help them get through daily life. But these people were sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus was moved to help them. He was moved to compassion. And there's different things that moved Jesus. He was moved by their hunger. We see throughout his miracles, he's moved by their sorrow, by their tears. He was moved, moved by Jairus' sorrow. He's moved by their hopelessness. And time and time again, these people who may also be hopeless or may also be filled with sorrow, he, as I've said time and time again, how many times have I said they have this disease and so they were social outcasts? They have this thing and so they would have to live outside. They have this thing and so they were off. So we see that Jesus was moved not just by their disease, but by their loneliness. Jesus was moved by their loneliness. It's an amazing thing when you realize. It's funny, we were singing that Better Is One Day song, and I think um, that song when we were playing in church when I first like, gave my life uh, again when I was in college um, in Asheville, North Carolina, if you can believe it. And um, I was like, and it just, just coming to understand who God was and that he saw me and that he loved me, and I wasn't alone. Jesus, he sees us in our loneliness. We're never alone. We're never alone. He sees us, and he is moved by his compassion for us. So many of these people are healed because Jesus sees them. He sees their loneliness. When we went to um, Jamaica, one of the things we did... Um, which isn't glamorous. I think sometimes when we go on mission trips, um, you want to feel a difference, right? You want to pray with someone, and you're like, they got saved, tally, right? Sometimes we like, I don't, Christians get into really like tally marks on people who are saved. Like I've seen people who came in and be like, we've won 526 souls for Christ. And they're like, that's amazing. <laughs> but then they're like, oh, they went back to the world. 525, 524, 520, 546. Um, and, and we really get caught up on, and I remember, you know, I did that too when I was uh, working in um, psych with adolescents. I would like feel really good about getting someone saved, and that's what made me feel like a good Christian, a good uh, evangelizer Christian. It's like, man, I got someone saved. But when we were in Jamaica, uh, we visited um, some old people, uh, and they, because of where they are, um, they would just be in their house. We, they were called shut-ins because they were just stuck at their house. Uh, they would have things delivered to them. And just sitting with them and talking to them. I mean, they could have talked to us all day. And honestly, I could have sat there and listened all day because they're just awesome. I love hearing their stories. Um, but you could just tell how, how lonely they were. Even this couple who had each other, you could tell they were lonely. And, and, and one guy even talked about the relationships he had with people that don't visit anymore. And it is so Christ-like to see people in their loneliness. It's not always about healing disease or sickness or getting people saved. Sometimes the ministry is seeing people in their loneliness and loving on them. There's a lot of people who are lonely in this world. They are lonely. I think we can see that with the increase in depression and anxiety and, and in suicide, right? I mean, 
anxiety, you know what makes people anxious is when they have to deal with something that it's over their heads and they feel alone. And Jesus sees us in our loneliness. And, he, and he's, we, we see he's moved by compassion to help them. He's moved by compassion to help them. Jesus is harvesting the lost. And that's what, that's what links to his next statement where he says, the harvest is great. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. The harvest is great, but the workers are, are few. There is a great need. There are people ready to be harvested. There are people who are looking for the living God, but there are so few people to introduce them. There are so few people in the fields ready for the harvest. Jesus himself said this. He said, the harvest is ready. The harvest is ready, but the workers are few. And Jesus is on earth, right? It's like God himself is on earth, and he's saying, but the workers are few. And you might, well, Jesus, you can do it all yourself. You're here. The harvest is ready, but the workers are few. The Pharisees saw the masses, and they just saw them as, look at these, look at these people. Like, they just, when, when God comes, they're just chaffed to be burned, right? They're, they're going to go to hell, and all the pure people will be, and that's awesome. But Jesus saw them as the harvest. What the Pharisees saw as worthless and ready to be destroyed, Jesus saw as the harvest that needed to be saved. But the workers are few. And this is one of the greatest Christian challenges that we have had. Even in Jesus' time, he says, the workers are few. With someone as inspiring as Jesus, with someone doing enough miracles to prove that they're Messiah, the Messiah is right there, and he says, but the workers are few. It's one of the church's greatest challenges. It's one of Christ's greatest challenges. There are not enough workers right? There are not enough workers. There are not enough people willing to do the will of God, willing to go out and reap the harvest. He says the harvest is ready. How long have we been praying for harvest, praying for people, right? Praying for people that they might be saved. The har- and you might, well, the harvest isn't ready. The harvest is ready. The workers are few. The workers are few. What if you had someone in your life who everyone they came across that was a Christian was working to get them saved? that was loving on them, that was seeing them in their loneliness, that was speaking into their lives, working at them from every single angle. The harvest is ready, but the workers are few. And prayer is important. Getting on our knees is important. Interceding is important. It is part of the work, but it is not all of the work. We have to use our hands and feet. The harvest is ready, but the workers are few. The workers are few. And let me tell you why. For the same reason Jesus told the blind men not to tell everyone. And sometimes we like to use verses like that. Well, Jesus told the blind men not to tell anyone. And until I specifically get a word from God, go tell Dan, I'm going to just sit. And I'm going to pray because I don't know the will of God. And I'm saying, well, God said to go tell people. It is the great commission. He commissioned us to do it. So why did Jesus tell the blind men to tell no one? Why did he instruct them not to tell anyone? Because he doesn't know, and like, you know, let's not get into Jesus knows everything. He has no control over what they might say. Because the term son of David, 
came with some expectations. If you remember the verse I read about the prophecy, yes, it said the blind would see and the mute would talk and all that other stuff, but it also said in God he will come and with vengeance and retribution. And you know what part they liked the best? Vengeance and retribution, right? Because if we're not blind or mute, we're really not receiving anything, right? But I could deal with some vengeance and retribution from the living God, right? And so that's what, that's what people were expecting. When they're thinking the son of David, this is why people missed, missed it, missed that Jesus was the son of God because of their expectations and what they wanted from Jesus, what they expected him to do, right? They thought the son of David would come and just like David, be a military power, restore Israel to glory, take over the world, throw Rome off their shoulders, right? And, and, overthrow Rome and restore Israel, bring them to power and set up an earthly kingdom. When they're thinking of building the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom, they're thinking earthly kingdom. And that's their expectation, right? When you're picturing son of David, that is so many of the people's expectation. Even the disciples had to be continually instructed as to what Jesus came to do. Jesus doesn't want to stir up an expectation amongst the people concerning the Messiah that has nothing to do, it leaves no room for the more important work of the cross. His work on the cross was more important. And what he came to do had nothing to do with what they expected of him. What they expected of him was different than the more important work that he came to do. So spreading the news of this Messiah, the son of David, and what they expected him to do is, is not, that's not spreading the good news at all. That's not spreading the gospel at all. It's actually in contrast to what Jesus is doing. They would have good intentions, these blind men, to give hope to people, to say that the Messiah is here. But the, their idea of who Jesus was was inadequate. What they know of Jesus is inadequate. They know that he can heal. What else do they know of him? Some of the things they know of him are based on their expectations or maybe what they've been told by the Pharisees or religious leaders. So not only what they know about Jesus, not only is it inadequate, but there's a good chance a lot of it was outright false, was just not true. And they never stuck around to find out who he was. They never stuck around to find out who he was. They never say, and the disciple, uh, whatever, I can't make up a name right now, um, who was once blind, right? We know all the disciples' stories. None of them were the people who were healed, right? These men, and I'm not saying they're like selfish or anything, they got what they needed. They got what they needed from him. They got what they asked for. Prayers answered. Right? They saw a miracle. They experienced a miracle, but they never truly stuck around to find out who he was, to find out his heart, to discover I mean, the Messiah. Man, wouldn't that be crazy to like have the Messiah, the Son of God there you've been waiting for forever, and everyone just wants him to do this action, but no one really wants to get to know him? <laughs> Heck yeah, take over the world! And he's like, well, let's talk. And we're like, Wah. Don't you have more important things to do, right? Like military conquest, right? How many people stick around 
to come to know the living God, to come to find out what he came to do. They had an idea, and even the disciples are kind of baffled as it comes to the cross that this isn't what you came to do. This isn't what you, what are you doing? He's like, this is what I came to do. He was battling the whole time with the disciples' expectations. But the disciples still hung around to find out who he was, to know his heart, and they eventually see what he came to do. But no one else does. These blind men do not stick around to find out who he is, and so they never become workers. If you do not become a disciple of Jesus, you cannot be a worker as Jesus is calling us to be. You can work, but some of that work might be building something that Jesus isn't trying to build. We have to know who Jesus is so that we can become workers. And we do the same thing. You know it's going to come to that, right? And we do the same thing in our churches. We want to receive from God. We want to be blessed. We want to go in. We want to get some hope. We want some peace when things are going wrong. We pray. We're on our knees. We need Jesus. We need the things he can provide for us. We need the miraculous. And God is good. God is good. God answers prayer, right? I don't know how many prayers I prayed as a teenager, not serving God, but in desperation prayed, and God answered that prayer. And I don't know why, because he's good. Because he's good. Because he wanted to show me his goodness. Isn't it so cool that we can just be like, God can still answer prayers to show us his goodness and his faithfulness, even when we're not good and we're not faithful, right? But, but we want all these things, but even when I would pray these prayers, I didn't, after I got what I needed, I didn't stick around to find out more about this Jesus so that I could become a disciple and therefore be a worker. The church does not have disciples and so we do not have workers. And I'm talking about the church globally. Jesus called us to be workers. And we pray and we pray for harvest. We pray and we pray for revival. We pray and we pray for people that they might repent and come to know God. We want to see this massive change, but we have to work. Who is going to reap that harvest? We need to stick around and find out who Jesus is and become disciples so we can have his heart and have that same compassion for people so that we can go get the harvest that is ready. The harvest is ready. The harvest is ready right now, not then. The harvest is ready. The workers are few. The harvest is ready. The workers are few. Sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray for people, and that is great. We need to pray. Prayer is important. I think it's just as, just as important as the work. It's something that constantly I'm trying, I think that the church doesn't focus on is prayer. So don't hear, don't hear me like, we need to stop praying. But we need to also work. There's a story Martin Luther told me one time. Um, I'm just kidding. I read this in a book. Um, and there's a, a monk um, and... And Martin Luther, Martin Luther said, you know, I'm going to go out and uh, I want revival. I'm going to go out and preach in all these places. I want revival. And the monk said, okay, that's great. You go do it, and I'm going to stay and pray, right? Who wants that job, right? Let's be honest. Yeah, you go do it. Go get that harvest. You go minister, and you do all that stuff, and I'm going to pray in my house, okay? Not dissing on the monk, Okay. But he's like, you go out and you do that and I'm going to pray and we're going to work together, right? I'll pray for it and you go out and do the work. And then one night he had a dream 
And he saw this huge field, this huge field of wheat that needed to be harvested. And one man out there harvesting the wheat. And he saw this and he was just like, man, this guy's never going to be able to get all this harvest. He's doing it all by himself. There's just no way. He, there's, oh, there's just so much there, and he can't do it. And then the man turned, and he saw that his face was Martin Luther. And he realized that God had given him this dream. And the next morning, he got up, and he left the monastery. And he said, I've got to go help Martin get the harvest. I've got to get out there. We all we need to get out there. We need to harvest. We need to be workers. We have to seek the heart of God so that we know who he is, so that we know what he wants, so we can know his heart. There's no way we can have his heart without knowing his heart. We have to know his heart. We have to know him so that we can be like him and have compassion and see people. Because sometimes, I mean, in the church, we can have this heart like the Pharisees where we see people out there and we're just like, ah, right? Like I saw a pastor say they, they needed their own plane because they weren't going to get on a plane with all those demons, right? And you're like, man, praise God, praise God. Um, that's getting people saved. Um, but we have to have the heart of Jesus, the compassion, seeing them in their loneliness, seeing them in their need, seeing them as Christ sees them. I want to be a church of workers, and I'm not talking about volunteers, right? Because every time a pastor preaches something like this, they're like, oh, someone's coming up and need volunteers. <laughs> I don't know why I pointed my watch. Volunteers, guys. <laughs> We're on the clock. But I want, I want revival. I want people to be harvested, and not in like a matrix way where we use them for batteries, but I want people <laughs> to know God. I want, and I know that so many of you do too. I know we've been praying. It's time to work. It's time to work. It's time to work together. It's time to work onto, onto what God has called us to do. It's time to be filled with compassion and go out and see, the lone, see people in their loneliness and have compa- compassion on them. It says in the Bible, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. So does that mean that we can be a Christian, say we're a follower of Christ, and not be a worker? I'll say being a worker is the evidence of our faith. But God isn't calling us to work just so that we work. It's because he sees a harvest out there. He sees the people that need to know him. And we are his hands and feet. And he has called us to work. Amen? Amen. Lord, I just thank you. I just thank you that you include us. I thank you that you include us, Lord. I just thank you, Lord, that even when we are not working, you are working. I thank you when things don't seem to be moving, you are working. I'm thankful that, Lord, when we pray and it seems like you're not listening, you are not only listening, you are working. I thank you, God, that you are a worker. I thank you that you have compassion on us, that you see us in our need, that you saw us in our need when you first called us. I thank you that you see me. The God of the universe sees me. An individual, just like you see each person in this room, just like you see all the people of the world, Lord. And I just pray that you would raise us up to be workers, Lord. That we could harvest the people, Lord, the people who need to know you, Lord. Fill our hearts with compassion. 
Fill our hearts with compassion that we can see the world as you see the world, Lord, that we can see them in their loneliness, see them in their sorrow, see them in their hopelessness, Lord, and that we would take steps toward them just like you did. You took steps toward them so that we could call them to you, Lord, that we might see their lives changed, that we might see them finally come to know what we know already of your goodness and your faithfulness, Lord. We just thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your faithfulness. Thank you for seeing us, Lord. Open our eyes. Open our eyes to the world, Lord, and make us workers unto your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about The Well and other resources to help you study the Bible, go to thewellministry.co.